Hello, and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network. Happy New Year, everybody. This is our first show coming back after the new year. Today is Friday, January 4th, 2019. Welcome Ooh. to 2019. <laughs> Hello. So, yeah, joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet is Gabby, Erica, Elliot, and Tiffany. Hello. Hello. Hello, everyone. Hello. So today we are going to be talking about the miracle cure you're not supposed to know about. Intravenous vitamin C or IV vitamin C. Uh, vitamin C is an essential nutrient obtained from food and supplements. It is frequently the go-to supplement for viral infections like the common cold or flu. Um, but one of the downsides with vitamin C supplementation is that only a small percentage is absorbed. Uh, when you're taking it orally, you're only getting so much of it in. There's kind of a, a limiting factor there. But enter intravenous vitamin C. This is a mat master antioxidant can be absorbed at 100% when given IV. Vitamin C given by this root is not just effective for viral and bacterial illnesses, but it can also be used to treat a wide range of ailments not limited to Lyme disease, multiple sclerosis, myasthenia gravis, burns, wounds, and various types of cancer. Yes, cancer. Um, right off the bat, I think we should say that this is a show for informational purposes. Um, we're not diagnosing or recommending anything in particular. You should always do your own research. Talk with your health practitioner before venturing into anything. So... Mm -hmm. How about that vitamin C, guys? Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Very. Good I think stuff. the average person is not going to have uh, private access to IV vitamin C. I mean, if uh, they actually get it, they're going to have to go through at well, least some formal channels. <laughs> <laughs> it me. It depends what you mean by private. Like, yeah. It's a home skill. Just the average well. Joe sitting in his <laughs> living room is not going to say, oh, I'm just going to start doing IV vitamin C on myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, when people think of vitamin C, they usually think of oranges. I mm -hmm. think that's because of the orange juice industry that's always promoting their vitamin C content, even though the vitamin C content of oranges is really nothing spectacular. You have to eat and like how many oranges? Like it's ridiculous to get a decent like, dose of vitamin C. I mean, generally the the um, what are they called? The like daily daily requirements or whatever that they have in different countries. It's like the vitamin C is so low. It's like they say, oh yeah, everybody should be getting sixty milligrams a day, and that's basically enough to stave off like scurvy, but not much else. Like you're not really getting much benefit out of 60 milligrams a day of vitamin C. And then by the time you end up eating all those oranges, it will be a <laughs> sugar load. Exactly. The other thing too is that vitamin C competes for uptake with sugar. Mm -hmm. So whenever you see like one of, I always laugh when you see those like uh, health drinks and stuff like that, where it's called like, vitamin C vitality or something like that. And then you look on the ingredients list and it's loaded with like high fructose corn syrup or like glucose or all this other kind of stuff. And it's like, 
even if there's a lot of vitamin C in there, which is probably debatable, it's like you're you're probably getting like less than 10% of it because all the sugar is interfering with its uptake in the gut. Yeah, it's it's also worth noting that um, vitamin C is extraordinarily uh, susceptible to degradation. So uh, there's been research showing that, you know, various fruits and vegetables, um, after they're picked, um, their vitamin C content sort of is rapidly reduced. Um, and so you go to the supermarket and um, just just to add, one of the things which destroys vitamin, D, uh, vitamin C is light. <laughs> so you go to the supermarket and you look at all of the vegetables which have probably been sitting there for quite a while and then you factor in the time that it took to transport the vegetables from the country that they were grown in um, and then they're sat there on the shelves and there's light all around and it's like okay so the chances are many of the vegetables and the fruits that we eat today um, really don't have half of the vitamin C in that they would have had if you'd have picked them like immediately. Uh, mm. So there's also that to factor into consideration, and especially with those drinks as well. It's like, okay, how much processing has that drink gone through? All of the contents of the drink, and then it's sat on the shelf, and it's got a shelf life of two years. It's like, uh, yeah. okay, that's probably questionable. What about those fizzy emergency drinks? You guys ever do those, the little packets? Mm-hmm. People love those things. So those contain a thousand milligrams of vitamin C, but it also has uh, maltodextrin, citric acid, uh, natural flavors, aspartic acid, tartaric acid. Mm. So, so I don't know if that's the best to take either. Yeah. I think if you're actually concerned about your vitamin C intake, probably the best thing you can do is just kind of supplement with it. I know food sources are better in most situations, but honestly, like if you're trying to do therapeutic doses of things, like say you've got a cold or something like that, like eating a few oranges really isn't going to cut it. So I think that generally this is a situation where if you're sick or you're feeling you need vitamin C for some reason, supplementing is probably a better way to go. Mm. I have uh, here some numbers that might be that might put uh, some perspective on what we're talking. For example, um, it says that uh, under normal circumstances or a best case scenario, people have around 0.7 to 1.4 milligrams per deciliter of um, vitamin C in their blood. Mm. Then if you supplement with vitamin C orally, you might get into one, three, four, you know, some 18 grams per day can get you there. Hmm. But if you have like 25 grams of vitamin C intravenously, you can reach 300 milligrams per deciliter. Wow. Yeah. So that's like a 300 fold increase, you know. Yeah, there's like inbuilt mechanisms when it's orally dosed. So, you know, one of the problems typically with people who try to get high dose vitamin C when they're taking it orally um, is that it induces diarrhea. Um, yeah. And there's a couple of 
theorized mechanisms for how that work. One of them is that it's like rapidly metabolized by gut bacteria. Um, and this like activates evacuation uh, via the gut. So, and, and it's, as you said, Gabby, like um, the, the level of vitamin C in the blood is really quite tightly regulated. So it's very difficult to achieve higher levels when you're taking it orally. So that's something that's, that is important. Yeah, that's right. So they are talking about, well, an intestinal regulation, a kidney regulation. But it is interesting that, you know, in the natural world, like animals, most of them are able to make their own vitamin C. Mm -hmm. It's just like us humans, primates, and I think guinea pigs, yeah, guinea pigs. Lost, <laughs> <laughs> lost that ability. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, one way that people try to increase the amount of vitamin C that's kind of um, absorbed is to take liposomal vitamin C. So I know the liposomal stuff, it's kind of like the vitamin C molecule gets surrounded by a liposome, which is basically like a fatty casing. And that makes it so it's kind of... I guess what it's doing is kind of bypassing the body's mechanism for limiting how much vitamin C is absorbed. Um, and uh, because it's uh, in a fatty casing, it's actually absorbed more easily as well. Um, so then you're actually able to uptake that um, a little bit better. They're claiming it's a nanotechnology, you know, like liposomes, like these uh, fatty coating around the vitamin C. Um, makes it that you absorb it um, easier into your cells. And uh, they did one study, you know, with nano, you know, these nano liposomes. And they were saying that, oh, like, if you take six grams of our stuff, that's like having 20 grams injected di directly into your vein of vitamin C. So um, apparently, yeah, that was very good news because the practicality of getting an IV, huh, it's not that easy. But other people who are not directly involved in that industry were saying, okay, yes, liposomal vitamin C, it's great uh, compared with ascorbic acid, but the absorption method is um, it's different. It's not like uh, for sure that the liposomes will you know, go directly to your cell. And even then, they might float around until they're finally absorbed. Apparently, the liposomes get disassembled in the liver. And um, so the, ben the beneficial effects of liposomal vitamin C could be additive instead of unique. Like there, um, some people actually recommend, for example, that you supplement with vitamin C, like ascorbic acid until you reach bowel tolerance, just like, you know, a few grams before you reach that diarrhea. And then when you reach that point, you can take the liposomal vitamin C and then you can keep going with an additive effect. It will build up mm -hmm. in your bloodstream, you know, without having that diarrhea effect. So, But the, if I understand correctly, Gabby, <clears throat> the effects of um, intravenous vitamin C are somewhat different to the effects of um, supplemental vitamin C. Is, is that correct? So essentially, 
if you take oral vitamin C or vitamin C in food or even liposomal vitamin C, vitamin C, you know, is typically known as an antioxidant. So it it's involved in all kinds of different reactions. You know, it's in, it's involved in the conversion of dopamine into norepinephrine, norepinephrine. It's involved in collagen synthesis. It's involved in carnitine synthesis. And these things are really important. Um, but for vitamin C, basically the use of vitamin C intravenously due to the, the the rapid rate with which it's absorbed, um, doesn't that actually have a pro-oxidant effect, which is more difficult to attain via other methods? That's so, correct. Actually, there are some research uh, papers, you know, that they have done studies, and they actually have seen that maybe up to 15, 25 grams IV maybe could act as an antioxidant, but after 25 grams, it is a powerful oxidant. But the good thing is oxidant, um, the oxidant effect is especially uh, harmful for bad cells, so to speak, for, for cancer cells, because they don't have, cancer cells don't have like this protective system, like antiacid system in, in terms of specific enzymes that protect it against this oxidant you know, effect from vitamin C. And basically vitamin C, intravenous vitamin C megadosis is actually and then creating this oxidant effect through hydrogen peroxide, you know, in, um, in tissues or the extracellular space. And this is like a killer effect for cancer cells. But normal cells, since they have enzymes or antiacids, so to speak, that, you know, buffer or protects, uh, protects um, them from the hydrogen peroxide, nothing happens to them. So it sounds like a very, very safe chemotherapeutic agent, you know, vitamin C as an IV. Yeah, I found that absolutely fascinating because I was reading one of the papers and it was talking about how, um, because you mentioned how it, um, vitamin C, you know, inc like rapidly increases hydrogen peroxide. Um, and the way that cells usually get rid of hydrogen peroxide is through the enzyme catalase. But what's interesting is that, as I just said, I was reading this paper and it was talking about how cancer cells, um, they don't express catalase or they don't express enough of it to be able to neutralize this oxidant effect. And so, um, the, you know, you, your healthy cells do. And that's what protects them. But it's just fascinating that the cancer cells, it renders them particularly susceptible to this, to this effect. It is fascinating from a biochemical perspective. And it is also fascinating because it, because it explains a lot of like uh, the experiences that people are having or, you know, the, the results that some researchers or doctors have um, have uh, um, received from giving mega doses of vitamin C to cancer patients that are, you know, cases of tumors like receding in size mm -hmm. progressively through the months until they disappear when they were sent home to die because they were not candidates anymore for surgery or radiotherapy or chemotherapy. No, that's yeah. something. There is actually <clears throat> the guy who, um, did the most work on vitamin C is Linus Pauling. Um, and he had a partner named uh, Ewan Cameron. 
And getting prepared for the show, uh, we read this uh, this one thing that he had written back in '82, uh, I think it was, where he was talking about their work on vitamin C and all the resistance that they had um, come across from from their research. You know, all they're doing is researching and looking at this amazing thing that that they're finding is working so well on cancer. And they're getting so much resistance from the mainstream medical company, uh, uh, mainstream medical people. Yeah. And establishment. Um, yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it, he, he was actually quite shocked at how much there was. Like, you'd think that if somebody was like, hey, I just found a cure for cancer, people would be like, yay. But everybody was like, no, no, you didn't. That's, that's uh, pseudoscience. That's not real. That's terrible. But anyway, the reason I brought him up um, is because in this this thing that he wrote, um, I just wanted to read. He had one. He's talking about one uh, case in particular. So quoting here, he says, this concerns a 40 year old man with widely disseminated reticulum cell sarcoma confirmed by lymph node biopsy. Arrangements were in hand for him to be treated by conventional methods of radiation and chemotherapy. But due to a purely administrative mistake and not as a result of the deliberate clinical decision this could not commence for two weeks as a purely holding operation he was started on intravenous vitamin c and within two weeks all traces of his disease hepat hepatomegaly splenomegaly liver enlargement uh <laughs> gross disseminated lymphadenopathy um mediastinal enlargement anyway Sorry, I should have practiced before I read this. Um, <laughs> had completely disappeared. He was released home with conventional, without conventional treatment and on oral ascorbate. As the months went by, his continuing well-being, well-being raised understandable doubts about the correctness of the original diagnosis, despite the histological proof, and his ascorbate was gradually reduced. After one month without any supplemental ascorbate, his disease returned in all its original manifestations. He was given a further period of intravenous ascorbate, again, with complete resolution of his illness. This man remains well for more than, 10, uh, more than 10 years later, still on supplemental ascorbate. Spontaneous remission of cancer has been recorded on quite a number of occasions, but this is the only case on record who has gotten better twice. <laughs> I may add that the original slides have now been examined by quite a number of both British and American pathologists and all agree with the correctness of the original diagnosis. Amazing, amazing. Right? <laughs> it's unbelievable. Yet the medical establishment will still say that there is not enough research on this topic. I think there was this one video that we watched in preparation for the show. The guy was from New Zealand, I think, and he uh -huh. was... In the hospital and the 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 board of medical directors i guess or the people in the icu met a few times and they will refuse to give him iv vitamin c despite his family insisting that they try it because they said that he was going to die anyway they were going to take him off of life support and so what what was there to lose so his family kept insisting the board kept saying no 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 and then finally they gave in and gave him some vitamin c and he had hard like, lawyers actually yeah he had this white out lung condition uh so his lungs are just full of fluid. fluid yeah and so they barely even showed up on the x-ray so after he got i think it was the first dose 
of vitamin C, they did another x-ray and they could see his lungs more clearly. And the uh-huh. hospital still didn't take that as proof that the IV no. vitamin C was working. The thing is, he had a triple whammy of bad luck because he had leukemia. This mm-hmm. is a cancer of the blood. Then he got the swine flu. And then he was dying from pulmonary distress syndrome. Very bad mm-hmm. prognosis. He was basically in a coma. And that's why everybody was 100, you know, 200% convinced that he was just going to die. So I think the family even hired some lawyers to actually get the vitamin C going. So that's why they accepted. And he received uh, uh, the standard protocol. I think they started, they built up to a dose of up to like either, either one gram per kilo or 100 grams of vitamin I, C, IV. And that's mm-hmm. when he finally tur- uh, got better. Literally the next day, his x-ray started normalizing. And the doctors will still not believe that it was due to the vitamin C. It was just, I don't know what they believe. I don't they, know. they said that gymnastics. it's because they, they turned him onto his chest in the bed. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. laid him prone and that was the him reason. Over. That's why. Miracle cure. <laughs> Be turn, more turn humble. The Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so they actually, because they had that attitude, like, I don't, anyway. They actually lowered the dose all the way to two grams, for, from 100 to two grams. And he was still getting better, but much slower. That's when the family decided, okay, so we're going to give him six grams of liposomal vitamin C orally because he was already conscious by then. And he, that's when, you know, he got better and better. Yeah. And but the hospital fine. still didn't want to admit that was the reason. There's not <laughs> enough research. I guess we should be thankful they they allowed to air a documentary about it and that is still mm-hmm. available in YouTube. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, the thing is, after that aired, um, apparently all these other people who had swine flu or any of the other kind of conditions that this guy had started demanding from their doctors that they get vitamin C. <laughs> and they had to go into kind of overdrive saying, no, 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 there's no proof that that's what made him well. Um, it's it's irresponsible. It would be irresponsible for us to do that. Like, give me a break. Irresponsible. <laughs> and like all this kind of stuff, like coming up with all these excuses. And I, I know there was one because they did a follow up show to it. Um, I think it was 60 Minutes um, Australia that did it. Um, and they did a follow up show where it was one guy who who actually ended up his father ended up dying because they would mm-hmm. not do the vitamin C. They refused. And they even gave a statement saying we will never give vitamin C. It's like, what kind of statement? Like, how scientific is that? It's like, what if the studies actually come out? You're still never going to do vitamin C, even if it's proven? I mean, at the very least, trust your eyes and say, okay, as a hospital, we're going to start doing some trials of vitamin C. At the very least, they could have done that. But they're just, no, we'll never do it. I mean, he could ask himself, what are the chances of somebody recovering from in a coma from leukemia? swine flu and pulmonary distress i mean search somebody in the literature come on complete recovery well one of the articles we read called the clinical impact of vitamin c my personal experience as a physician and i'll put the link up in the chat the um doctor just uh put in ascorbic acid into pubmed and found twenty-four thousand articles so (laughs) And basically what he said was, uh, 
What began to emerge as I proceeded to review these thousands of articles was that vitamin C is more important than any other treatment for infection or exposure to toxin. Mm. Mm. 24,000. They just yeah. missed all those. There's no research, Erica. <laughs> There's no research. I think only in the last year, over 800, you know, articles have been published about it. And uh, to recognize these uh, little efforts, you know, um, it is true that in a bunch of countries around the world, you can get this therapy done privately in a private mm -hmm. clinic. Mm -hmm. um, for example, in orthomolecular.org, if you go this website, uh, if you go to resources, you will find a list of practitioners that do, you know, IV vitamin C by country. And almost every country is covered in that list. So at least that. <laughs> yeah, they were the I'm one not... that published that article, Gabby. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Orthomolecular <laughs> News Service, yes. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, in the past, you know, in medical history, I think um, especially around the 50s, it was used a lot for all kinds of conditions and they were getting miraculous effects for things like viral encephalitis, poliomyelitis, you know, shock, you know, septic shock, um, also cancer, but they were more... Uh, concerned with infections because they had less resources back then and mm -hmm. they will have excellent result, results by giving mega doses of vitamin C just within two or four days, you know. They will start with like probably uh, 100 grams or one gram per kilo and then uh, this, uh, the second dose will be slightly lower or maintained and they will, the person will, you know, just respond, you know. Mm -hmm. Wow. You know, it's ironic that <clears throat> it is accepted, like people are allowed to do vitamin C IV for like beauty stuff. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like because it's good for collagen and stuff like that. And so people, people can go to some spa or something like that and get a vitamin C infusion. Now, mind you, the doses aren't high enough to affect cancer or anything like that, but they can do it because they want their skin to be better. You know, because it helps with collagen and all that stuff. So, so it's like, oh, you know, I want a youth, uh, a youthful treatment to make me look nice, nice and beautiful. And they're like, oh yeah, let, let's do this IV vitamin C. And somebody's like, I'm dying of cancer. Can I do IV vitamin C too? No, no, you can't. I'm sorry. If you just wanted your skin to be better, then we could do it. But since you want to cure your cancer with it, no, that's not allowed. Isn't that crazy? And the same thing applies, I think, for near infrared, infrared lights, like. If it's for beauty reasons, yeah, you just go to a you know aesthetic salon or whatever, you'll get it done. For medical reasons, oh, I don't know, I never heard of that. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's it's the same for um, mesotherapy as well, which basically refers to like a percutaneous injection of something into the skin. Um, most of that that I can that I can see is purely cosmetic. When actually, if you look at the work of Rene Quinton and all of the stuff that came after that, um, there's such therapeutic potential. But then mm -hmm. when you move into the, the realm of, of medical treatment, this stuff is seen as, as really woo-woo and kind of a, a bit crazy and no one really wants to go there. And it, it's absolutely astonishing. Um, 
Yeah. People are okay with the Botox injections, but <laughs> make my lips look fat like I just got punched in the mouth. No problem. <laughs> Cure my skin condition. Nope. So is this yet another case of the medical lobby being so strong that they will not accept any alternative treatment that proves to be beneficial because of their bottom line? Yes, definitely. Yes. Okay. I would well, say that's what all the articles suggest. <laughs> In perspective, like Linus Pauling, who won, you know, a couple of Nobel Prizes when he did his initial, you know, or published his initial results with megadoses of vitamin C in IV in cancer patients, the medical establishment, um, you know, responded to that by trying to confirm his results. But what they did, and this was the Mayo Clinic, uh, what they did is instead of trying it IV, they did it mm -hmm. orally, which mm -hmm. we already reviewed is not the same thing at all, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and yet to this day, people cite that as evidence that it doesn't work. <laughs> that Pauling and, uh, uh, oh, I lost his name. Cameron. 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 Yeah. But Ewing and Cameron's research is, um, has been debunked because of this uh, Mayo Clinic follow-up, which is complete BS. Mm. And vitamin C in IV, it's pretty safe. But uh, maybe we can review a little bit how some people do it and what are the potential side effects, just so people know that, okay, if I'm in a dire situation where I will choose to, you know, go to a private clinic and maybe get this done, what can I expect kind of thing? Mm -hmm. And, uh, well, for example, in the old days, um, they were using, uh, well, megadoses of vitamin C. Uh, and uh, they had, yes, like... The mishaps that happened the ext were extremely, extremely rare. Like, there's no comparison, you know. You can be more worried about, yeah, especially the side effects of chemo or radiotherapy mm -hmm. or even taking ibuprofen or even paracetamol. Vitamin C and IV megadosis is relatively safe. Um, there was a case of somebody who died. Yes, that is correct. But what they discovered is that this person had a genetic defect. He had a deficiency if one of the critical enzymes, you know, in red blood cells called G6PD, that stands for glucose 6-phosphate uh, dehydrogenase. Well, the hydrogenous. Dehydrogenous. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you. Anyway, um, this enzyme, <laughs> it acts like uh, an anti-acid in red blood cells, and if like a natural anti-acid, you know. Mm. And if you don't have this enzyme or not enough of it, if you get megadoses of vitamin C, you will have no buffer to counteract the hydrogen peroxide or all the oxidant effect from vitamin C. It will be like, it will happen the same thing like with cancer cells that don't have these enzymes, they'll just die. Mm -hmm. So that happened. Since then, it is pretty much a standard protocol to always do this test before getting megadoses of vitamin C and IV. People who have this genetic mutation are usually people from African descent and Mediterranean descent because it is, it is a mutation that arose uh, due to exposure to malaria. But nevertheless, it is systematically done to all people. And so that is the main thing. And then there is a protocol that starts with a relatively low dose, like 15 grams, 
and it builds up until it reaches like one gram per kilo or 100 grams depending on the condition or the cancer and just to see if there are side effects and if people tolerate the dose. Usually what happens with mega doses of vitamin C and IV is that the person gets dehydrated. You know, it's like, you know, having not enough water in your system. So some practitioners actually add a bag of water in IV before, or they actually encourage the person to drink a lot of water with electrolytes or salt or, you know, beforehand or during. And also uh, the other potential side effects is low blood sugar levels. You know, a person can have, you know, can faint even from, you know, low blood sugar levels. This happens especially in people who are not in a ketogenic diet. That is, they are used um, to have a carbohydrate metabolism. So these people, yes, they're also encouraged to eat while they're having the infusion. And that will significantly, significantly decrease this side effect. Other people who are keto adapted, that is, they are uh, fat, they are, their metabolism is based on fat metabolism. They usually are able to sustain glue, good blood sugar levels without having any lows, you know. Mm -hmm. So overall, it's relatively safe and they have done already even mainstream um, research about it, like phase one clinical trial, so to speak, to see how safe uh, megadoses of vitamin C in IV is in conjunction with chemotherapy or without it. And yes, the results are in. It is so extremely safe that yes, don't, you know, don't worry as long as you are, uh, as, as long as you're doing this therapy with a practitioner that knows about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they had, they studied like over 9,000 patients uh, with uh, doing this uh, protocol mega doses vitamin IC in with or without chemotherapy. And um, they saw effects like in, you know, in less than 1.5%, you know, pretty safe, you know. And the side effects were pretty manageable. Mm -hmm. The actually even the side effect, the bad side effects that ha that were reported in the literature in the very early days when people were not following a specific protocol was because vitamin C worked too well. What happened in one case is that a patient with metastatic cancer, cancer spread all over in his body, you know, he received megadoses of vitamin C and what happened is all the cancer cells died like suddenly, abruptly, which is called mm -hmm. like uh, medical terms, necrosis. And the, the, the body, you know, the, the patient was not able to deal with so much dead tissue, in his bloodstream or in his body. And he, yeah, and that something that happened because of that. That is why the protocols nowadays, they always start with a lower possible dose and they are individualized depending on the type of cancer and the person, the age and so, so, and so on. And written in nowadays, it is very rare to have like a side effect. Yeah. I find it really interesting too that um, the IV vitamin C in conjunction with chemotherapy and radiation actually makes those things work better. That it's not even just kind of, um, you know, cause I think some people will do the vitamin C, but still do the chemo and the radiation, you know, whether because their doctor is insisting or because um, they want to kind of cover both bases. Mm -hmm. But apparently the chemo and radiation is much more effective if it's done in conjunction with vitamin C as well, mm -hmm. which is pretty fascinating also.
yeah, it makes it less toxic. And um, there was a recent podcast, or at least in the last couple of years, uh, with um, Dominique D'Agostino, which is a keto mm -hmm. expert. And he, he's a researcher based, you know, studying keto in cancer, you know, applications in cancer in conjunction with um, oxygen therapies like hyperbaric chamber, you know. He was talking with a medical doctor. The interviewer was the medical doctor, actually. And uh, he was asked, okay, if it was your wife or somebody you really loved, you know, who had cancer, you know, what would you do? And his first choice is just like, yeah, the research points to like, you really like, you literally want to have a killer therapy in, uh, in cancer. Like you don't want to do like things like glutathione and IV because they act as antioxidants. You literally want to kill the cancer, you know, mm. and don't want to uh, give it help that mm. will enhance its mutations favorably. So it will, you know, it will be more deadly. And he was saying that he will definitely do the mega doses of vitamin C IV for its killer capacity. And because it is so safe and uh, yes, and then some oxygen therapies that he has researched and other chemical compounds that actually arrests the, the metabolism of the cancer cells. So that was pretty interesting. And um, he was saying that, you know, he was thinking also, as you say, you know, that, yeah, there are some patients that are so divided or just they're just so vulnerable that they don't know may, they might think okay yes uh give me a radiotherapy is the way to go that yeah that benefit more uh, uh when it is done in conjunction with mega doses of vitamin c I'm yeah because so one of the keto diet would do the keto diet as well yeah he will do the <laughs> keto diet he will give exogenous ketones like cheating ketones, oh, yeah. <laughs> cheating ketones. which uh enhances the ketogenic state other than being on a keto diet but yeah that's a different story i guess mm. but yeah that's the idea uh in the context of it supporting um or reducing the negative effects of the the chemo or the radiotherapy um i just wanted to add because like we we're talking about how intravenous supply of vitamin C can have this pro-oxidant effect, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of it will will be pro-oxidant. And and as part of chemotherapy and radiotherapy, there's so much damage to like unnecessary oxidation to healthy tissue. Um, and when there's when there's oxidation to to healthy tissue, you really kind of want to repair that. Uh, as best you can, and you do need antioxidants for that. And like you said, Gabby, with the with the idea of giving intravenous glutathione, it's potentially problematic because the cancer cell can actually use that. Um, and yeah. so there's there's so many nuances around this. And yeah. um, but That's it you know it's, it seems fair to say that that you are by doing this i mean it seems like one really one of the perfect therapies if i had cancer i would totally go for this because yeah. because it has that pro-oxidant effect completely killer activity on the cancer cell but then also the antioxidant activity protecting all of the surrounding tissues and potentially regenerating the endogenous antioxidants which are used to repair the damaged tissue if someone's gone through chemo or radiotherapy so, I mean, really, you're hitting both bases there. And I don't know of anything else that's been studied that can do that. 
Um, so again, it kind of really brings brings up the question. Well, I guess there's not really much of a question as to why it's been dismissed dismissed by by the mainstream medical community. I think probably because it's so effective, and that big pharma cannot have this um, getting out. Because quite frankly, if you look at the uh, statistics, uh, if I'm correct, then radiotherapy and chemotherapy make up um, one of the most profitable aspects or profitable products that are produced by big pharma. Um, yeah, and so and it kind of makes sense. Immunotherapy, which, you know, is extremely expensive, you know. All the research that is being financed nowadays, yeah, they will be very upset <laughs> if vitamin C comes along and, <laughs> exactly. and ruins the party. <laughs> you know? Exactly. But it is a good point um, I wanted also to mention because a lot of alternative practitioners, they're also very focused on antioxidant approach. And uh, and we got to remember or we got to keep in mind that, that some cancer cell, cell lines, they're extremely cunning, manipulative, intelligent, you know, they behave like monsters, you know, they will take everything in their favor. So even things like, um, you know, um, uh, nutrients or antioxidants that you will think will help the body, they will take advantage of that. And that is why, yeah, the research points to a killer approach being more effective. And, uh, you know, and even, you know, chemo radiotherapy, you know, it's, a kill, it's the ultimate killer approach, but it ends up, you know, killing all the good cells as well the, and the patient <laughs> and often you know so um vitamin c in iv mega doses even though you might think is the most impractical thing uh you know uh in a dire situation it is something to keep in mind especially nowadays in the last years it is be becoming more available accessible even though it is uh you have to yeah go to a private practice or private clinic. I just want to add to what you just said, Gabby, about cancer cells being highly manipulative, because um, although there's, you know, loads of information on the benefits of a, a ketogenic diet for particularly for the brain cancers, um, it seems that even some types of cancer can can use ketones as well. Yes. <laughs> so it's like reminder. many yeah. many people think that they can just go on a ketogenic diet and and kind of reverse or or improve their cancer. And unfortunately, there's lots of people dropping down dead because a ketogenic diet isn't always as effective as it um, as it is purported to be. And you know, if you've got one of these particular kind of cells or cancers which can use fatty acids which can take ketones and use them and manipulate them in for protein synthesis and all this kind of weird and wonderful stuff which some of them can do it seems um yeah. it's like okay ketogenic diet but in conjunction with with the vitamin c it seems that 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 you know that's that seems to be a safer option rather than just trying to do it dietarily yeah, um, that's a very good reminder because uh, the ketogenic diet became very popular as a cancer treatment. But there is research that shows that the cancer basically like says, oh, so you're just going to give me ketone bodies? So I might switch to just using ketone bodies too. Yeah, it's <laughs> extremely disappointing, but that's the case. So it's uh, literally like a multi-approach, but highlighting the killer approach. And yes, and the best option that we have 
at hand right now is uh, vitamin C. Yeah. Is the does do any of the cancer cells you, you utilize ketones better than they utilize glucose? Like I'm just wondering if you you should do ketogenic diet just um as a fail safe. You know what I mean? Like it, it, you should, like you may as well do it because even if it doesn't benefit, it's at least not going to do any harm. I might still do it. You know why? Because at le at least uh, it stabilizes blood sugar levels, mm. and that helps to have less side effects from the megadosing of vitamin C. And um, but yeah, apparently there are some cancer cell li cell lines that will respond better to ketone bodies. But even the classical. Mm you know, approach of like the proverbial, you know, malignant brain tumor that apparently the ketone diet is excellent for it. Uh, and now there is actually research which shows that, you know, they can switch to to using ketone bodies, you know. Yeah, it seems like a good fail safe at least. Um, but yeah, yeah it, it just doesn't seem to be the answer for everyone. I mean, there are some miraculous cases. I mean, look at Andrew Scarborough. Uh, in the UK, who is, you know, he's practically remission or he's been managing his cancer for, you know, five years or so using like a purely very deep ketogenic diet. But um, yeah, unfortunately, it's, it is just it doesn't seem to be effective um, as, as a sole measure, you know, is like is the only thing, um, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate. There was one other thing that I wanted to add about um <clears throat> Vitamin C, I don't want to derail the conversation too much, but it was one of the um, one of the researchers who studied it is um, basically talking about when you measure vitamin C in cancer patients, um, typically it's always very low. And mm -hmm. if you look at many of the symptoms of the cancer patient, they develop something called cachexia or cachexia. I'm not sure mm -hmm. how... Uh, basically, there's fatigue. Yeah, there's fatigue. There's lethargy. There's all of this kind of stuff, and it's like um, it's basically characterized by muscle wasting. Okay, and he's talking about vitamin C's um, essential role in carnitine synthesis. So, car carnitine is one of the amino acids. It's something that we get in the highest amounts from red meat, but it can actually be synthesized. And you need vitamin C to synthesize it. And carnitine, its main role is to basically take fats and transport them into the mitochondria to be burned for energy. Um, and so he was saying that aside from all of the pro-oxidant effects, uh, you know, like the hydrogen peroxide and the killing of the cancer cell and even the antioxidant abilities of the vitamin C, um, he was saying that one of the other reasons why such high doses might actually be really beneficial is because um, what it may be doing is is rapidly increasing the synthesis of carnitine and it's it's helping people to maintain muscle mass to, to maintain energy levels to maintain ATP synthesis in the rest of their body um, to burn fat properly um, and and contributing toward toward the 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 overall positive outcome that you see in vitamin c treatment mm -hmm. i thought that was really interesting because i didn't know that i didn't know that i wasn't aware that it, it was involved in carnitine synthesis yeah. um so yeah i just thought that was interesting how some people when they start it um they they feel like they've got more energy and, and things and it could kind of help to explain that 
And maybe if we clarify for listeners what uh, what else vitamin C is involved, then we can have more clues when it is good. Mm. <laughs> well, we we said briefly at the beginning, but um, I think also you know, uh, vitamin C is involved also like in neurotransmitters, you know, creation of neurotransmitters, mm -hmm. like epinephrine, for example, and uh, collagen, uh, you know. Collagen is basically like the skeleton or most of your tissues, you know, blood vessels. And uh, they did they did this in the past, like, you know, early 20th century, like a tourniquet test, kind of like, you know, putting a lot of pressure, you know, in your arm. And if you have a lot of capillary frailty or if your blood vessels were, were really weak, um, you will get a lot of bruising easily. And that was a sure sign that, yeah, you were severely lacking in vitamin C. It's also needed in the adrenal glands as well. So it's needed to synthesize um, various of the adrenal steroids. Um, mm -hmm. And it's proposed that when someone's under sort of chronic stress, mm -hmm. um, that it, it increases your need um, for, for vitamin C because of this, because you're you're basically funneling out loads of adrenal stress hormones, and that is basically depleting the adrenal glands of vit vitamin C. Now, there's a condition called adrenal fatigue, which is mm -hmm. like, n there's a couple of theories about what it is. It was first assumed, basically, if you ran a stress test on some of these people, you'd find that they would typically have very low, low levels of cortisol, um, and that, that was kind of theorized to be because the adrenal glands were depleted and they were treating it with vitamin C. And I don't know if they got good results or not. I'm not sure about that. I think there's a couple of theories now that it's more of a brain based kind of thing, but, um, mm. but that is one of the functions of, of vitamin C. And it would kind of make sense that if you're one of these people who is under chronic stress, um, then you would probably need more of that to maintain the, the burden. Sure. They're theorizing also that because vitamin C helps to create epinephrine, that people who have adrenal fatigue uh, have high, high, have, um, you know, uh, sometimes the uh, low cortisol levels after they're exhausted of creating so much cortisol, that helps to balance that. It doesn't rely too much uh, on their, it doesn't stress too much the cortisol system if there's more effective epinephrine going around. Mm, like mm. a lot of people were saying, I remember the founder of Green Med Info, Sayerji, saying that, yeah, guys, remember vitamin C is like uh, most effective thing against adrenal fatigue instead of like buying expensive supplements with yeah. multiple <laughs> compounds for adrenal fatigue. Adrenal extracts. But it also speaks of how uh, it is. it has been so effective in chronic fatigue syndrome. This is a disease which is in the spectrum of an autoimmune disease and like mainstream medicine never, you know, effectively deals with it. Um, they're treated, patients with this disease are treated like, oh, you're basically crazy, you know, that doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, how come you have sometimes energy and sometimes don't, you know? And yeah, vitamin C is helpful for that as well, you know. Yeah, what's interesting about that as well is that in chronic fatigue is that there's usually um or there's a, a strong correlation b between chronic fatigue and underlying um bacterial or viral infections so mm -hmm. epstein-barr virus is one of those 
Um, and um, yeah, I was reading one of the papers uh, about intravenous vitamin C, and I'm not sure if it if it applies to oral vitamin C as well, but I, maybe it maybe it does. I'm not sure. I was talking about the effect that vitamin C has on the viral coating and how it can basically stop viral replication in its tracks. And, and therefore, that, you know, that's why it's being used in viral infections as well as cancers and things. So it's not just, um, I mean, as, as, as has been said before, it's not just effective for cancer. It seems to be effective for all sorts. I mean, the article that you wrote, Gabby, on, on your website, I mean, it's very extensive. You know, polio, um, Epstein-Barr, um, you know, all kinds of different things <laughs> it's like yeah it seems a miracle you know but it's a good point because back then in the day uh they have the excellent results with severe infections the kind of thing that our little guy from new zealand you know would die from if he would not have received vitamin c you know mm -hmm. uh, uh pulmonary distress syndrome respiratory distress syndromes or um and swine flu or the flu um you know mumps uh, rubiola um hepatitis mm. <laughs> okay, keep, you know chicken you name everything <laughs> chicken pox, lyme's yeah. disease mm. too lyme yeah tularemia you know even odd things where food was not prepared properly and you know <laughs> mononucleosis <laughs> yeah exactly mononucleosis is a big one you know and um and these people yes to their credit you know or to our reassurance, okay, you can start with vitamin C orally and building up to bowel uh, tolerance. And then, you know, when it gets a little bit more desperate, that's when you keep in mind, you know, parenteral use of vitamin C. I say parenteral because they use it intramuscularly as well, which is more accessible. The thing with vitamin C is that it's too hypertonic. It's, it burns, you know. Mm -hmm. So that is taken into account when it, when it is given an IV. You, they buffer it, they, they make it so it will not be so acidic, and they put it in solutions that will not make it burn as much. For example, lac Ringer lactate is a famous one, mm -hmm. and other countries have other equivalents, or just plain sterile water, you know, for injection. And in intramuscular, you know, back then in the day when they're really desperate and they had an unconscious children or they couldn't find veins, they will use even two grams at a time intramuscularly. Yes, it will hurt a lot. <laughs> Just keep the ice pack ready Jeez. and put it immediately until the skin turns red. Wait two minutes and do it again. <laughs> but it will work. You know, the person will turn around and, you know, it, you know, it will, he will recover from his infection or his disease. Uh, usually this was an infection, you know, I'm thinking about cases that they described about, you know, even varicella, severe varicella, or mumps, or, yeah, that types of infection, that type of infection. What and, about things uh, like yeah. MRSA or antibiotic-resistant superbugs? Yes, they, ha they have studies about that, apparently. And this is something I always do even when I have to prescribe an antibiotic. I always give uh, some vitamin C, uh, what is available in my country, you know, um, in the system. And it helps to prevent resistance or makes, you know, it has a double whammy antimicrobial effect, so, so to speak, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, some, uh, for example, pseudomonas, which is um, green, you know, makes a, it's an infection 
uh, has a particular smell and it is green, the bacteria. Well, anyway, mm. diabetic people get it a lot. <laughs> Sorry, mm. we didn't have to be so descriptive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, multi-resistant pseudomonas is a big problem. And this is the type of infection that you have to treat it with intravenous antibiotics. So by giving vitamin C, uh, the treatment is more effective and the chance of, uh, of eliminating the bacteria is better because these guys, you know, create biofilms like castles and they can live in the body, you know, indefinitely mm -hmm. <laughs> until the person is stressed and then boom, infection again. So there's really no excuse not to be using IV vitamin C in hospitals since it does so well against viral and bacterial illnesses, especially bacterial illnesses where we're having this rise of antibiotic resistance. People have yeah. been on so many antibiotics that they just don't work for them anymore. So vit yeah. IV vitamin C would be perfect for that, but still we don't use it. Yeah, some hospitals, so we have to give all the support, voice older all our support to them, you know, in the intensive care units, they're using it more and more, the vitamin C, at least even in maybe in more countries than others. I know, for mm -hmm. example, when back in 2000 and when did I arrive? 2002 or three, when I arrived in Italy, yes, vitamin C was systematically used in the intensive care unit, not in mega doses, but it still helped. And, mm -hmm. uh, now that are more serious saying, oh, it could have a big uh, difference in septic shock if you give megadoses of vitamin C. Mm -hmm. So let's not lose hope, but let's not hold our breath either. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially when in the U.S., the FDA recently has <clears throat> made the availability of IV vitamin C much more, um, much less. Mm -hmm. Essentially, they, they have, um, they put a, uh, ban on the mass production of intravenous vitamin C. So that was one thing they did. And another thing they did is they lowered the availability of uh, intravenous products, like the bags and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, and this all happened after that 60-minute story came out. Yeah. Like all of a sudden, That's people right. couldn't get these <laughs> bags anymore, and they banned the production of IV vitamin C. Now, mind you, I've seen YouTube videos where there's people, people basically making it in their kitchen. Um, for IV. <laughs> I don't know if I necessarily recommend that, but um, it, it is possible. Mm. Well, in format, uh, well, there are vials. Okay, in most countries, uh, there are vials that you can get with a prescription in the pharmacy, but they contain only one gram per vial, usually five milliliters. Mm. Then but they you have to have a doctor write a prescription for that, right? Yeah. Yes and no. Maybe in some countries, no. I mean, it is a vial that is specifically for intravenous or intramuscular use, you know. Mm -hmm. But well, I've heard stories um, of patients telling me that, oh, I got it without a prescription. <laughs> because it's vitamin C, people think that they will just drink it or I don't know. Well, in the and U.S., that, I think yeah. you have to have a prescription. But I actually looked yesterday on a certain website that sells medical products. And there was, I think it was a 50 gram uh, ascorbic acid vial for yeah. injection or IV. It was like 200 some dollars for one. Vial. For one. That's yeah. overpriced because in mo yeah. most pharma pharmaceutical companies that do these vials, they are, have either 
25 or 30 grams up to 50 grams usually it's around 50 dollars per vial 45 euros or mm -hmm. 60 dollars you know that's the standard price more or less well they have some for veterinary use I don't know if this is for IV or if it's for injection, but they're much cheaper and they're sold on Amazon. <laughs> huh. No kidding. <laughs> yeah, but, but it they is sell. True. Yeah. Yeah. I know what I'm know. using my gift card for. <laughs> <laughs> it is true that uh, there are a lot of, uh, there is effort from the part of uh, practitioners that do this in their private practice to find a pharmaceutical company or even to create one to, that will sell vitamin C at a lower cost mm -hmm. because um, it should not be that expensive. You know, in the old days, how they did this, they basically sterilized, you know, um, a bottle, you know, like a half a liter bottle, you know, with its, uh, with a funnel and it's, and it's a rubber stopper mm -hmm. in, and then a spoon. They will fill the bottle with <laughs> sodium ascorbate fine crystals, you know, um, the line of the bottle up to 300 cc is around 250 grams of sodium ascorbate crystals, you know. Then they added around one, you know, like 6.6 .6 milliliters of um, evitate disodium, you know, this is like to alkalinize the, the whole thing a little bit further. And then they added just turtle water until they filled the bottle into 500 cc. The thing is, with megadoses of vitamin C, uh, if you have a high enough concentration, and we can put an arbitrary line on 30 maybe, megadoses of vitamin C has antimicrobial properties. It sterilizes the solution. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's why even though back then in the day they were not you know, crazy careful with their sterilizing conditions, you know, they didn't have... A, they actually use this, the thing to treat infections, you know. Yeah. It just sterilizes a solution, like a dosing, you know. So that's why. And um, hmm. so yes, you can. It is a. Uh, it is not so difficult to do it, but yes, because they have now all products for parenteral use, and here I'm meaning uh, IV use. They need to have a. There is very strict control, and that's in a sense good, you know. So mm -hmm. they can guarantee their, you know, sterility that it doesn't have any kind of like nothing filters in. You just have a pure product. And there are so many nuances to this vitamin C. So the, yeah, the, the best thing is just to get a practitioner that is familiarized with the protocols and that, you know, uh, can individualize the dose for you and, you know, do the IV and stuff. But still, I think, um, even people who are in an emergency and they cannot have this accessible. Um, that is also like, for example, um, enemas to consider, you know. Mm -hmm. This is something that the orthomolecular um, organization recommends for even children who have has bad veins or that are unconscious, you know, that type of emergency. They say that you can make um, enema with uh, sodium ascorbate, you know, uh, like 15 to 30 grams and up to 250, 500 milliliters, you know, and that could work as well. So since vitamin I still C, think in, yeah. in that case, it's not as absorbable as IV, but no, it can still sure. work in some cases. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's just like if you go through, 
I published in my blog a summary from all the information available. It's called Vitamin C's Historical and Miraculous Record. If you go to health-metrics.net and you search for vitamin C, you'll find that post. If you read that article, the historical record, I know it's a lot of reading, but it's a fascinating reading. How they use it, you know, basically when they're so desperate, you know, if you're a desperate situation, yeah, <laughs> try this while you think about a diagnosis that you <laughs> you can think later what the person had, but don't let, don't let the patient die, you know, <laughs> just mm -hmm. do it, you know. And these physicians were advocating, yeah, like ambulances should have like vitamin C available. The th first thing that, that you know, uh, a technician or a physician working in an ambulance should do, you know, <laughs> well, get the IV, get it going, you know. So that helpful, you know. And then, but yeah, it's part of the historical record. And one, I wonder if it will ever come back at this level or no, we're pretty much lost this wisdom. Maybe not, but I think that if more... Um... EMTs and emergency room staff and ICU staff start using IV vitamin C as one of their first lines of defense. Maybe it will spread out more into the uh, regular floors in the hospital. Maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's, it's interesting because uh, talking about, you know, it's the ER, ER department of the hospital is, you know, emergency medicine, which are kind of, making use of this kind of stuff um mm -hmm. it's the case with vitamin c it's also the case with other things as well it's interesting how that pans out because um they, they you know in emergency rooms they will use intravenous thiamine as well and intravenous mm -hmm. thiamine is absolutely fantastic for so many other health health conditions you know, things like Parkinson's, things like multiple sclerosis, dementia, you know, all of these other chronic health issues, which are not, um, you, you know, which you, you would not associate with thiamine, they, you know, they can be treated with, with intravenous thiamine. It's just interesting that they use it in the emergency rooms. They also use vitamin C in the emergency rooms. They probably use other things in the emergency rooms as well. Like sodium um, bicarb they use a lot. Sodium bicarb. And do they use DMSO as well? Mm, I've never heard of them don't using that. Sure of, yeah. No? Magnesium uh, okay. they'll use, though. If somebody's having a heart attack, they'll give them uh, injectable magnesium. They don't use that anywhere else in the hospital. <laughs> yeah, so so it's like they'll use these things in an emergency, but maybe these people needed it before the emergency occurred. You know? <laughs> yeah, maybe because it works, it's actually because their body actually needed it, you know, two years ago, before they mm -hmm. got to the point where they had the, the acute heart failure or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's hopefully it catches on. <laughs> Well, I don't think we need to hold our breaths on that, though. No. <laughs> I mean, this is the real world we're living in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you've got okay, to take honestly. initiative. Yeah. 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 I mean, people just, as we always say on this show, people just need to do their research. I think if somebody mm -hmm. is suffering from something where uh, IV vitamin C would be something that would be helpful, then they need to try and source it out, see if they can uh, find it and um, get to work. Mm. because uh, medical establishment isn't going to save you. Yeah, once you get in there, it's hard to get out. I think the best <laughs> approach, as with all things, is to take a preventative measures where you actually don't 
get to the point where you have these emergency situations like yeah. modifying your diet, certain lifestyle factors that you can enact these changes so you don't actually get to the point where you're in this emergency and you, oh my God, I need IV vitamin C. I mean, some things can't be prevented, but there's a lot of things that can be just with diet and lifestyle. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just a note too, we have a few chatters asking about liposomal. Uh, at the end of the show, listen to the beginning because we already covered it. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we can review it briefly as follows. Like, uh, you know, generally the orthomolecular, you know, people recommend um, orthomolecular.org. They recommend, okay, just uh, if you're feeling like you're getting down, you know, getting up the flu, you know, kind of like sore throat and stuff. You do ascorbic acid orally, you know, vitamin C orally. Mm, you don't want to reach bowel tolerance. You know, you don't want to have diarrhea. So you do that orally right before you reach bowel tolerance. And then to increase the effectiveness, you can add some liposomal vitamin C because they act differently. They get absorbed differently. So the effect is, you know, is additive. And uh, then the desperate situation is that if that didn't do it, then yeah. Hello, Get somebody. Your IV. <laughs> IV. Somebody does IV around here in this town or country. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that's one way to do it. But yeah, usually the plain ascorbic acid works better because it doesn't buffer the stomach acid. You know, your your stomach is very important, you know, to protect you against infections and to digest food. So you don't want to like give alkaline stuff, like even a sodium ascorbate, which is the alkaline version. It is not as effective as ascorbic acid, but if you don't tolerate ascorbic acid properly, then yeah, your options are sodium ascorbate and liposomal vitamin C. I have a quick question, Gabby. Would it be counterproductive to do liposomal like weekly or just to maintain a good oh, immune no. system? It's, it's a, okay That's to a do very that? good question because actually these guys from the orthomolecular, they have a lot of research. You just go to their website and you'll see all the published data that they have. You say, yeah, that's the, where the science is. They actually recommend liposomal vitamin C for more chronic stuff. You know, or if you want to increase the levels of vitamin C in your bloodstream in conjunction with IV vitamin C or oral vitamin, normal oral vitamin C, like in cancer or chronic infections, you know. But if you have an acute problem, liposomal vitamin C is not as, as effective. It's not as predictable. You know, you can literally have the little fat thingy floating around and not where it's needed. You know, you want you know, highly effective absorption where it's needed, highly oxidant effect. That's where an IV should be considered. But for chronic stuff, or say, for example, in a cancer protocol, they usually recommend um, liposomal vitamin C. And that's why our guy from New Zealand, you know, recovered, you know, after he had a mm -hmm. mega dosing life-saving event. He came out of his coma and he finished off, you know, his therapy with liposomal vitamin C. It just adds the concentration of vitamin C into your bloodstream. It, it adds up to that, you know, to build up that... Mm -hmm that, you know, bloodstream concentration. And for relatively healthy people who don't really have yeah. any issues, it's still okay to take a daily supplement of vitamin C. Yeah, it is okay. Actually, you can save money. 
if you're buying this stuff, if you want to guarantee the nanotechnology liposomes, if you're buying it, you'll find that it is a little bit less than 40 euros for 30 grams, you know, mm -hmm. uh, regardless of the pharmaceutical company. So if you want to save money, you can do ascorbic acid orally, and that's uh, relatively cheap. And then, you know, uh, finish off with, you know, some liposomal vitamin C. Or maybe we can share our homemade version, <laughs> <laughs> which is not as effective, but why not? You could do, you know. <laughs> I don't know. You guys have the recipe around? Oh. <laughs> I have uh, one here, but I'm not sure if it's the ultimate one. I don't carry it with me usually. <laughs> it is the one that we research and posted in the forum. It's just that some people increase the quantities to adjust it for big families or big mm -hmm. batches. So the one I have is as follows. It's three level tablespoons of lecithin. And uh, don't get extremely, you know, nitpicky about your lecithin because it's highly processed and even GMO stuff disappears. But yeah, okay, maybe that's that's not politically correct. Okay, get <laughs> GMO-free lecithin <laughs> from soy or sunflower. Sunflower, if you're super, you know, careful, okay, yes. But keep in mind, it's highly processed, it's highly purified. And that will be three level tablespoons of lecithin, and it will be one level tablespoon of sodium ascorbate. You can create that by combining ascorbic acid and sodium bicarbonate. And sodium bicarbonate, that's correct. And, uh, and you dissolve the lecithin in one cup of warm water. That will be 240 cc for the international guys system. <laughs> <laughs> and um, preferably distilled of course and let it soak you know for a while a couple of hours that will do and it doesn't have to clump so maybe warm water is better but it's better you know and then you dissolve the sodium ascorbate in half a cup of warm water to also distilled and then you pour both solutions in a ultrasonic cleaner and mix it there in the ultrasonic cleaner for 20 to 25 minutes that's a jewelry cleaner for those of you yeah. <laughs> need to but use your Amazon gift card. The you can buy them. They're about yes. 25 bucks. <laughs> yeah. So that's the... The, the recipe. The, the home, home version. version. <laughs> it should be stated that the home version likely is not getting as many of the vitamin C molecules into the liposomes. Mm -hmm. Um but nonetheless, um, you're getting some. So it's going to have uh, better delivery than just your standard vitamin C yeah. in general. But it's the stuff that you get commercially where they actually make, uh, make it in kind of like commercial things. They're not using like ultrasonic jewelry cleaners, probably. <laughs> um, those ones are more than likely have a much higher ratio of the number of particles that actually end up in the liposomes. Mm -hmm. And pharmaceutical companies or lab, specialized lab, they're using nanotechnology for yeah, okay. to making liposomes. This ultrasonic cleaner, even if it's one fourth <laughs> effective, it's still good. You yeah, know, something exactly. Something. <laughs> yeah, but I and do it's know that's really some people inexpensive have... to mm -hmm. make. You know, I mean, you can make it for twenty, thirty dollars. It's true. Yeah, and plus the lecithin is good too. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. But there is a, just a warning because, you know, on liposomal, if it's completely in the liposomes, you're not going to get um, reach bowel tolerance on it. But I know that people doing the homemade stuff will reach bowel tolerance, which is an indication that there's still 
some vitamin C that's not within the liposome. So just be careful with it and, you know, titrate your dose to make sure you're not going to get uh, uh, bad bathroom experiences out of it. <laughs> so did anybody have anything else to add about vitamin C? Well, one of our chatters asked if it's okay to do IV vitamin C just for a tune-up. And I would definitely say yes. Yeah, like, I just want to try just to see what that. it's like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how the most easier way you can get in your country is to go to beauty, you know, yeah. longevity center. <laughs> exactly. Just say, I want perfect skin. And they'll be like, here, we'll give you some IV vitamin C. <laughs> Okay, well, maybe we should go to Zoya's pet health segment. Yeah, it's on excessive grooming in cats. Hello, and welcome to the pet health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. We all know that cats like to groom themselves. If we have a feline pet, we may see them sitting in various positions and licking themselves for quite a while. Basically, grooming is a natural behavior for cats. Cats may spend up to 25% of their waking hours grooming. But there is such a thing as too much grooming. Grooming becomes excessive when it takes precedence over other activities or no longer seems functional. What's more, all this licking can lead to hair loss, skin wounds and ulceration. So listen to the following recording by Dr. Karen Becker to learn more about this compulsive behavior, why cats do it, and how to help them. Have a great weekend and goodbye. Hi, I'm Dr. Karen Becker, and some cats take their natural tendency to groom themselves to the next level, turning it into a compulsion. Kitties who excessively lick and groom themselves have a condition known as psychogenic alopecia, which is one of the most common feline compulsive disorders. Excessive grooming often begins with what we call a displacement behavior. Cats do best when a daily routine that is predictable and consistent is a part of their lives. And as a response to a change or a stressor in their environment, some kitties will perform a specific behavior like repetitive grooming over and over. This displacement behavior helps to reduce the emotional tension that the cat is feeling because Licking actually can release very soothing endorphins. If the anxiety producing situation continues, the cat may continue the displacement behavior repetitively until it becomes compulsive or habitual. The type of stress that triggers excessive licking tends to be ongoing and is usually a combination of stressors that are cumulative. For example, a new family member, a move to a new house, or even a relocation of the litter box around the house can upset the average kitty and trigger displacement behaviors. Female cats tend to be more prone to psychogenic alopecia than male cats. The disorder can happen at any age, but it's commonly seen around the time of puberty. There could be a genetic basis for this disorder because it's seen primarily in certain purebred cats, primarily oriental breeds that tend to have anxious temperaments. The disorder can also occur with kitties who are hospitalized or who have been boarded, deprived of freedom, which means caged for a long period of time. Bored cats commonly exhibit this behavior or kitties that are generally stressed or have anxious dispositions. It's important to differentiate psychogenic alopecia from other reasons kitties lick specific areas of their body, such as pain or an irritation on the skin. There are actually many medical conditions that can cause cats to overgroom. If the problem is generalized itching, the licking will, will be widespread. They'll itch a little bit of everywhere. 
And if there tends to be a painful area, the cats will focus their licking in where there's pain. For example, if the anal glands are impacted, then that will prompt the cat just to lick around the, the perineal area. When a cat focuses her licking, it can give you clues as to what the underlying issue could be which could be any number of things, including fleas, a neurologic or chiropractic issue, parasites, food intolerances, or a reaction to dust, pollen, or mold. Conditions that aren't skin-related, but that can also cause excessive grooming include cystitis, which is inflammation of the bladder, and hyperthyroidism. And actually, I've seen really intense facial itching as a secondary reaction to thyroid drugs in many kitties. Other reasons cats can acquire nonspecific dermatitis are somewhat less obvious, including food hypersensitivities or a reaction to actually one ingredient in the food, including a vitamin, a preservative, or a dye that's in the food. Kitties can be very sensitive to environmental toxins, including VOCs, phthalates, and airborne toxins released from room sprays or plug-ins, as well as scented candles or household cleaning supplies. Reducing your pet's environmental chemical load is a really important first step in identifying possible household causes for irritated skin. Offering filtered, pure drinking water from a glass or stainless steel bowl is also very important, so eliminating plastic from your kitty's life is a good idea. Identifying and correcting underlying environmental and medical issues is a really important step before you should assume that your cat is licking for an emotional reason. If a kitty licks to the point of breaking skin, then obviously skin infection can occur, and the presence of infection will intensify the licking, which can result in even more of a vicious cycle of licking and being irritated and then licking and then being really irritated. Cats spend about 30 or up to 40% of their day actually grooming themselves, and much of their remaining time is then spent sleeping. So it's very common for pet owners to be oblivious to the fact that there's significant hair loss or bald spots or even scabs from over-grooming. It's also possible that cat parents don't notice the behavior because when they're home with a cat, she feels more comfortable and she's relaxed or she's not doing the self-soothing behavior. Obvious signs of psychogenic alopecia are excessive licking and chewing. More aggressive kitties can resort to biting themselves and pulling out clumps of hair or fur. There may be shafts of hair that are chewed down to stubble and there also can be wounds or ulcerations. So if you have a scabby kitty and you don't know why, you should be thinking about this. Hair loss and skin damage will be localized to the area where your cat can reach to lick and chew. So on the top of the head, that's not what's going on. Often it's the abdomen, the flank, the back, chest, and also the inner thighs. There may also be a line of stubble down the back or on the front of the legs that looks a little bit like razor burn, and that can be a clue that your kitty could be over-grooming. In addition to excessive licking, there can be other signs of stress, including hiding or refusing to eat, nervousness, not using the litter box. These are all clues that the behavior could have an emotional rather than a physical root. However, I've seen a lot of kitties with psychogenic alopecia, and the only symptom manifested is this compulsive grooming. So the kitties just appear to be very calm, they don't seem stressed, but they just overgroom constantly. When all medical issues have been ruled out or resolved and you've narrowed the problem down to an issue of compulsive behavioral licking, treatment should be focused on stress reduction and environmental enrichment. Cats like to eat at the same time every day, so making feeding time very consistent is a good thing. Keep food bowls and litter boxes in a very consistent location and of course, exceptionally clean. Provide your kitty with lots of great hiding boxes and access to high perches, as well as appropriate scratching surfaces. Most cats really enjoy interacting with you, so make sure that you're taking time every day to be present emotionally and be the emotional support that your kitty needs. So interact with your cat and be really present. You also want to make sure that you keep your cat physically active on a daily basis with an interactive toy or laser pointer or a wand toy. So get them physically moving. 
I think many of these cats actually are incredibly bored. So providing many options for mental stimulation throughout the day is really important. Catios or safe time spent outside can also be super life-changing for these cats because they get to see and smell their natural environment. Opening the curtains or blinds before you leave for work can also provide something that your kitty can watch throughout the day if they're gonna be home alone for hours without anyone checking on them. Brushing your cat's coat is also beneficial for removing loose hair and cutting down on hairballs, and many kitties really enjoy being brushed. Invest in a treat or food dispensing toy for your cat. You can also think about window perches and kitty videos to actually provide environmental enrichment when you're not there. Also talk to your integrator veterinarian about stress remedies for anxious cats. I've had great success treating these kitties with flower essences, homeopathics, and acupuncture. Consider stress-reducing sprays around the house as well, such as the feline facial pheromone spray called Feel Away. CBD oil can be very beneficial for stressed cats, as can silvervine. Silvervine is kind of the alternative to catnip. It's a calming uh, natural herb you can provide, as well as valerian root. Most importantly, you need to be patient. You need to never punish your kitty for over-grooming, as this will only make the situation much worse. Remember, excessive grooming problems usually take time to resolve, no different than any other addiction being broken. So think of your kitty as having a bad addiction, you wanna work with your cat. But with consistent attention, affection, and a really good routine, most kitties do actually get over the psychogenic alopecia issue. They will regrow their hair and their quality of life will improve within a few months time if you address it consistently and as quickly as you notice the problem. Those are some well-groomed goats. <laughs> no alopecia there. <laughs> nope. Maybe they watch goat videos. So they can appreciate their natural environment. <laughs> Maybe they can create their own vitamin C. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that is our show for today. Hope you all enjoyed. Thanks to our listeners and our chatters. And be sure to tune in to the other two Sought Radio Network shows. Tomorrow is the Truth Perspective. And on Sunday is Newsreel. Yeah. So thanks for joining us and have a great week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.